Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. Sabah al-khair. Good morning, dear listeners. You're listening to Radio 3CR on 855 AM and Palestine Remembered with Yusuf Arrimawi, Nasser Mashni and Robert Martin. Thanks for tuning in to another edition of Australia's only radio program that is totally dedicated to the Palestinian cause in English language. And in today's episode, we will talk about Mike Pence's visit to Israel. We'll talk about the defunding of UNRWA and the anniversary of the Egyptian revolution, the seventh anniversary. So for this and more, stay with us and enjoy the episode. Good morning, Nasser. Yusuf, how are you? Happy New Year. Happy New Year. It's great to be back. Well, unfortunately, again, one of us is missing. Robert isn't here today, but uh, just the two of us. We will be, uh, hopefully, the three of us next week. Inshallah. Uh, well, the good news now is that the two best-looking guys are here. <laughs> of course. <laughs> Our and token white he isn't. It's, it's, it's sad that it's not a, a television show. Yeah, yeah. Because Especially with your new hair as well. Uh, with my new look. <laughs> I don't know about that. Thanks for reminding me. But uh, today I thought uh, maybe you and I can provide some reflection on what's been happening in our absence and uh, we'll just stop at some stations. Of course. We'll start with the most recent. Yeah, yeah. most recently Mike Pence has mm. visited or just in, in, mm. in the past week visited uh, the Israel and the Knesset. Hossam Zumlot, our uh, ambassador to uh, Washington, the head of the PLO de- delegation, delegation, refers to the current moves as the uh, Armageddonists uh, playing yeah, absolutely. behind well, the, the steering wheel. Yeah, evangelical the, Christians. I mm-hmm. mean, and tr- and Mike Pence is one of these people, you know. Remember, this guy said he doesn't want to be, uh, doesn't won't attend a, a function without his wife if there's going to be single women present. So you have the contrast between the danger of having one of them or somebody like Pence uh, and Trump uh, shaping and ruling our uh, uh, future, versus um, that in fact it might be better for us because these people, I mean, uh, given that Netanyahu is their counterpart. Mm-hmm are more capable of showing the real face of Israel. Well, the reality, I mean, in the first instance, let's talk about the um, the bedfellows, the strange bedfellows. You know, the Christian evangelical movement is wants Israel to be established and wants um, the ingathering of all Jews because it's written, and they believe, that once that happens, uh, the end of times is nigh, uh, the return of uh, Jesus will, will happen, Armageddon will occur, and all of the non-believers, those that don't believe that Jesus is our saviour, will go to hell. Mm-hmm. So, but Israel doesn't care. Israel doesn't care because they'll take the support from anywhere. Yeah. You know, when, yep. you're, when you're a prostitute, you'll just take anything from anyone. Yep. <laughs> and, and this is what Zionism and, and this state represents. The, the, that's in, in its first instance, yeah? In the second instance, what we've got is, you know, this guy's only a heartbeat away. And let's, let's call Trump for what he is. You know, he is, you know, a, a misogynist and all of the ugly words that we might say. But on Israel... Trump is not unique to presidency. No, no, no. Obama was a smooth-talking snake oil salesman. Mm -hmm. You know, this guy gave $38 billion in military grant uh, funding for the next 10 years, U.S. billions of dollars, to kill 
more babies babies to continue the occupation, yep. to continue to deny uh, the Palestinian rights of return, to continue to deny Palestinian self-determination. I mean, Trump is the most obviously exposed and mm. and um, but he's not better than he, Obama was no better, nor no. was Bush one or Bush two or, or Clinton, Clinton or all of them, or the one after, or the one after. I can tell you from now, or the next one. Correct. The reality, though, is we got to the point now, and you know, Pence in his speech, you know, he said, um, "Well, they no longer say that ops, settlements are obstacles. The words now are may not be helpful. Settlements may not be helpful. They may not. So be he's helpful. not sure." <laughs> Uh, so he came in, in in a situation where the Palestinians refused uh, to meet him. In meet fact, him. this was uh, not the uh, scheduled uh, time of uh, his visit. It was scheduled in December, Correct. so he had to cancel it and call it for uh, four weeks off. Uh, but uh, on popular level, the Palestinians showed unprecedented level of rejection to American counterparts, at least since Oslo Accord happened. Yep. Now, this... Even though that it might be late, and it is late, uh, but hopefully it's not too late no. to to rebuild our our momentum in, in in a direction that all Palestinians can at or most Palestinians can be united behind, because we do lack a national project at the moment. Mm-hmm. Hopefully, that something good well, this could will be come a unifier. Out. That's right. Something good will come out of the bad thing. Well, one of the things you know, um, Israel's democracy was on display. Um, anybody seen the vision of Pence's speech? Um, some of the joint list, the Palestinian uh, citizens of the state of Israel who are represented by the joint list in the Knesset, mm. held up signs and mm. they were forcibly removed. So, you know, yes, that, that's a wonderful display of democracy when uh, members of the Knesset, you know, members of the Israeli parliament are removed because they object to somebody being there. I, I, I called it the most honest moment of the Knesset yeah. because it shows the real uh, definition of democracy in Israel. Yeah. And I mean, as as you started saying, Yusuf, in this conversation, what this has done is exposed finally the the, the reality that the U.S. is not an independent arbitrator. It's, the U.S. is not a a fair judge or a fair interlocker of um, a negotiation. And what it does is it presents an opportunity a for us to reunify Palestinians around a, a rallying call, but also one of the the great things that came out of this when when Trump in his first, you know. Um, press conference with Netanyahu and he only said Wednesday, Tuesday, it's whatever, you know. Uh, and then Netanyahu looked at him like, what are you talking about, man? The, what, what the hell's going yeah. on? I mean, Pence was over there too saying, you know, the US would support a two-state solution but only if everybody wanted to supported it. Um, so th- what that means is even the US now has moved beyond the paradigm of the discussion of a two-state. So what there exists now is an opportunity for the rest of the world to step in, you know, the EU, who currently pays a significant chunk of the cost of the occupation on behalf of Israel in subsidizing um, the PA and Oslo, because it was based, Oslo was based on the concept that we were trying to get somewhere. And the reality is the Palestinians were trying to get somewhere, all the while the Israelis were stealing. And the EU is paying and currently funding um, Israel's ongoing oppression of the Palestinians. So there's an opportunity now for the EU to do the right thing, as they did in Kosovo, as they've done uh, previously elsewhere. And that's to start putting putting the pressure on, mm-hmm. and that means you know sanctions. That means um, you know BDS in all of its forms. And there's an opportunity for them to take some leadership now. I mean, we've got Sweden's move to formal recognition of Palestine. We've got motions in uh, many European parliaments in, mm-hmm. in Britain, in mm-hmm. Ireland, Spain, France, um, even in the European Parliament. There's discussions about recognizing the state of Palestine. You know, if we start moving to the point where the whole of the world recognizes the state of Palestine, except for Israel. 
Micronesia. Micronesia, Palau, and the uh, United States. I, I keep uh, forgetting one of them, but <laughs> except for the seven uh, the guys. The, the usual suspects. Yeah. Um, you, know, you know, things can change. I mean, we did it in we did it in South Africa. We did it in East Timor, Kosovo, Bo- uh, Bosnia. It can happen. So next, uh, we will listen to some highlights of uh, the vice president's speech at the Knesset. America stands with Israel. We stand with Israel because your cause is our cause. Your values are our values. And your fight is our fight. We stand with Israel because we believe in right over wrong, in good over evil, and in liberty over tyranny. In the story of the Jews, we've always seen the story of America. It is the story of an exodus, a journey from persecution to freedom. A story that shows the power of faith, promises hope. This April, we will mark the day when the Jewish people answer that ancient question. Can a country be born in a day? Can a nation be born in a moment? As the state of Israel celebrates the 70th anniversary of its birth. We'll leave it there and we will move on to the next topic, which is the uh, cutting of uh, UNRWA funding. So to start uh, this, uh, Nasser, I would like to give our listeners a quick rundown of what UNRWA means. Mm-hmm. UNRWA is United Nations Relief and Work Agency. It started its operation in 1951 in response to the failure of international community to, um, to bring about a solution to yep. basically for the Palestinian refugees to return. And um, it started uh, in forms of providing them with tents um, and some uh, food, uh, monthly coupons, what we call kartil mu'an. This is a famous uh, word in our dictionary in the 50s and 60s. Later, uh, they started building schools. They started hiring teachers and Mm -hmm. admin uh, people at schools. And uh, hospitals uh, started with clinics, etc. So today, UNRWA provides education and health for the Palestinian refugees who are in Palestinian refugee camps in five geographical locations, in West Bank, in Gaza, in Lebanon, in Syria, and in Jordan. We should say more than five million Palestinians, Yusuf. And I remember um, the speech that the commissioner director of UNRWA uh, gave in Canberra in uh, December 2015, um, he started his speech, Nasser, with asking the audience to just think of events that happened in international arena or in Australia, important events since 1951. And of course, people started saying the, you know, Vietnam, Vietnam man Korea, on the moon, man in the moon, the uh, Korean War, and then the collapse of the Soviet Union and the Berlin. And you, you know, we we, we we might need five good minutes to just go through the items of important events. And in Australia, of course, the end of white Australia policy, multiculturalism, mm-hmm. Whitlam, and you name it. So he said uh, the Palestinians became refugees, then honor was started, and then a long list of events and variables to the equation happened. Fast forward, 
and the Palestinians remain refugees. The Palestinians are still refugees. The Palestinians are still refugees. That's the only constant in an equation filled with variables. Mm -hmm. In fact, he said it in a context that there is nothing to celebrate at the birthday of UNRWA. The fact that we still have to provide our services to refugees is not a good uh, reason. It's a testament to the failure of the UN and the international body to... Um, to fulfill its obligations to the Palestinians when it created the State of Israel. Mm. So, despite all that, now there is war on the funding of UNRWA. Think about 5 million people who are registered to UNRWA and dependent in in all of those places, health, food, education, social services. um, The the reality is that if UNRWA didn't exist, these 5 million people... You know, it would be a complete and utter disaster. I'll, I'll tell you something. I mean, biggest uh, belief. Both my parents are uh, products of honorable education. Yep. They wouldn't have had any form of education had it not been for honorable. And now we pride ourselves as nation that we score one of the highest uh, literacy uh, rates. rates in the Arab world, at least. In fact, Palestine probably number one in the Arab mm-hmm. world. Uh, uh, of course, thanks to the resistance and resilience of the Palestinian society, but also to the infrastructure that UNRWA provided. We should actually speak to, because amongst Palestinians, education is uh, a mantra, you know. And there's, the a joke, they, there's a joke where a Palestinian mother meets uh, another Palestinian mother and the, Palestinian, the second Palestinian mother introduces the first one to her son, the doctor. And, you know, he just finished medical school and she was very proud of her son. And the other mother goes, oh, my son's a doctor too. And and the son says, oh, really, where did he train? Oh, he hasn't uh, actually trained yet. Oh, where did he go to school? He hasn't gone to school yet. Um, he's two. <laughs> but he will, de- he, <laughs> he, will, will he will definitely be a doctor. He will be a doctor. And, the, and, and yeah, by, no, beyond that is the, uh, uh, you know, in the first instance, um, ascribing great value to doctors, and we love them, <laughs> but the, the value of education for Palestinians who've been stripped of everything, yeah. stripped of everything material. Yeah. Um, and I remember my, my father, uh, late father, God rest his soul, would say, they can take everything from us. And I, I, I am a testament to everything they took. But what they couldn't take was what was in my head. Yep. And so for Palestinians, education is at the forefront. And we see many families deny themselves, or you know, even as a refugee, just even the most basic of things to ensure that their children have uh, the, the opportunity that they can possibly have. One of my relatives, my father's sister, a family of maybe nine, who all uh, relied on one income, an income of a nurse, living a life of poverty in Hattin refugee camp in Jordan. And with this one income, his highest priority, the father and my auntie, auntie may Allah's blessings be on her soul, she passed away in 2012, their uncontested highest priority was education. So all of them lived on so little so that everybody could get the best education possible. And if you see where my cousins are today, you will see PhD holders, you will see architects, you will see engineers, you will see doctors and teachers, people you are proud to be relatives of. Mm -hmm. I don't want to give other examples because we have limited time, but let me tell you that, uh, yes, we do have the determination, but the means, the mechanism, the tool to translate that into something on ground was the infrastructure that UNRWA provided in forms of school and uh, hospitals. Now, I also want to quickly mention the um, the fact that uh, the difference between 
UNRWA and UNHCR, maybe we'll try to be very brief now and mm-hmm. we can elaborate later. It's a whole show on it's, itself. It's a whole show on itself. And you know, Nasser, you and I have been working on, uh, on, Aspire. on, on Aspire and to provide some form of support to Palestinians who fled conflict zones. Mm-hmm. Because what happens in the, with, with, when, when a Palestinian uh, flees a conflict zone, uh, unlike the, uh, the citizens of that zone, like let's say in the case of Iraq, in the case of Syria today, uh, the treatment of Iraqis slash Syrians are different to the treatment of Palestinian Iraqis or Palestinian Syrians from an international community perspective. And it's because of the fact that some of the Palestinians have the UNRWA registration, others don't, international community don't see this uh, uh, for administrative or bureaucratic reasons. So you, you will see that a lot of Palestinian Syrian refugees, in fact, nearly all of them who left Syria, are left with no aid simply because they are not eligible to UNHCR registration. We can talk about that later, but... Um, the good thing also is that um, Belgium and Swe- uh, Sweden have made up some of the some of the shortfalls. Mm-hmm. Well, we should just before we finish on this topic, um, following uh, Trump's tweet and uh, the announcement by the State Department, uh, Benjamin Netanyahu called for UNRWA to be scrapped, <coughs> and um, he accused the agency of helping in quotes fictitious refugees, and. The, the the concept of a, a fictitious refugee is really crazy when you consider that Benjamin Netanyahu's, you know, uh, claims to a right of return are 2,000 years old, uh, based on a promise that his God made his people, that uh, our 70-year-old right, right of return that is in, within living memory is documented. The title deeds and keys to our homes still exist, that his 2,000-year-old Right more valid. is more valid than our fictitious mm-hmm. 70-year-old. And, and the substantiation of our 70-year-old refugee status is, uh, uh, is significantly greater than his 2,000. Well, thanks for putting it so blatantly clear. Mm. Uh, so we will definitely go back to the issue of honorable funding uh, later. Um, what else do we have, Nasser? We should speak about um, uh, Netanyahu, continue that vein. And just in a very quick one, you know, he... Uh, the the uh, uprising in, in in Iran sort of has died away, but in in that in our time away, uh, there was a video circulating of Netanyahu, you know, urging the Iranians to to go go into the streets, and that the Israeli people love the Iranian people, and he was sending them a note of um, congratulations and empathy. You know, this is the same guy who denies Palestinians the right of return, denies them the right to vote, even though they're controlled. It keeps two million Gazans in an open-air prison. I mean, it just beggars believe. How this guy just um, wakes up with himself? It reminds, just me of, uh, it reminds me of a statement that uh, one of my friends uh, posted uh, yesterday highlighting the hypocrisy when it comes to the eviction of some of the African yeah, refugees yeah. to Israel. And, you know, the liberal Israelis are so sympathetic, sympathetic to the refugee issues. The same people are all of a sudden, with a press of a button, become ruthless mm. when it comes to the right of oh, Palestinian well, well, refugees. The, the best one was there was uh, some pilots have joined together, you know, from El Al, and they said, we refuse to fly these refugees from Israel. Yeah, They had no problem dropping a one-ton bomb on an apartment block killing tens of Palestinians. No problem dropping a bomb on a Palestinian. Expect us to give them credit for their morality. Yeah. Anyway, we won't be doing that. So, speaking of the uprisings in Iran, 
Last Thursday was the seventh anniversary of the Egyptian revolution. I will try now to um, make a quick rundown of events uh, over that took place in Egypt uh, over the last seven years. But to understand what led to the revolution, we have to uh, speak about the situation in Egypt before the 25th of January 2011. The situation in Egypt uh, was very intense and polarized. The atmosphere was filled with frustration and anger. Uh, and to describe the beginning of 2011, we have a legacy of 30 years of uh, one person ruling the country, Mubarak, and his family also uh, took over uh, the pillars of the Egyptian economy. Mubarak had plans to bequeath uh, ruling Egypt to his son Ala, preparing him to be the next president. So there was no political horizon of change, no democracy. There was parliamentarian election uh, in 2010 that uh, was a scandal in uh, many levels. Uh, there was also anger and frustration over the police treatment of population, treating people without dignity and corruption and violence. And the famous case of Khaled Saeed, who was tortured to death and subsequent uh, social unrest. Uh, um, Facebook page is called We Are All Khaled Saeed, protesting against the brutality of police. Um, and then came the Tunisian uh, revolution and how they succeeded on the 14th of January to put an end to Ben Ali's uh, rule of Tunis. So the Egyptians were filled with hope that they can do the same. So they chose the 25th of uh, January, which was the day the police celebrates its establishment in protest of police. Uh, so uh, they wanted to make the... Uh, police anniversary or the anniversary of the establishment of Egyptian police uh, a day to rebel against the regime. So on 25th of January it was the beginning and of course as any beginning uh, you don't reach the high, the highest peak or the climax uh, and, or your best uh, momentum. So um, and those who basically took to street on the 25th were uh, the spearhead of the revolution, not big in numbers, um, civil society activists, some of them uh, from political movement, but the big political movement like, like the Muslim Brotherhood did not join the revolution from its beginning. So the next Friday after 25th was on the 28th. That was called the Friday of Anger, Jumat al-Ghadab. And that was indeed a Friday of Anger where hundreds of thousands, millions of Egyptians around Egyptian cities and towns took the street in protest of the police and big clashes. And it was too big to control the regime uh, Mubarak sent, uh, didn't send the police, he sent the army, people didn't clash with the army, but they went to the headquarters of Mubarak's political party and they uh, attacked them and they burned them. Uh, of course, uh, police and uh, security forces responded with w w harshly and an estimated number of 1,000 people were killed on that day. 
So from the 28th of January to February uh, the 12th, uh, a long list of things happened that led to Mubarak stepping down and led to the revolution of Egypt really indeed changing the top of the regime. So we can imagine the sheer of joy and happiness that spread across Tahrir Square, across Egypt and across the supporters of Egyptian revolution all around the world. After that, Egypt was ruled by the military council led by uh, General uh, Tantawi and his assistant uh, Anan. Um, one of the most immediate results of the revolution was the removal of restrictions on freedom of expression. So we started seeing new uh, waves of media outlet. Um, political powers uh, also shaped the public sphere uh, by forming uh, political parties. For example, the Muslim Brotherhood uh, movement uh, established uh, Al-Hurriya Wal-Adala party. Um, the Salafis established a Nur party. Um, uh, and Egypt, the Egyptians for the first time had the chance to vote openly and freely. They first voted on uh, reshaping the constitution. Then uh, before the end of 2011, they voted for their parliament, first time uh, free elections. Uh, the Muslim Brotherhood and the Salafis uh, won that uh, parliamentarian election and uh, towards the beginning of 2012 and mid-2012 people started uh, talking about presidential elections so in June 2012 they had their first free elections uh, President Morsi won the election very marginal win but it wa he was the first uh, democratically elected president of Egypt uh, before the end of 2012, uh, things started to evolve in the wrong direction. President Morsi issued the uh, what what was called the constitutional creed, giving himself um, unprecedented powers. It was uh, not welcomed well by the civil society. It was not welcomed well by the other political parties. So it started another chapter of internal turmoil. Uh, from December 2012 to June 2013, the atmosphere in Egypt was very polarized between the Islamists, those who want Morsi to continue his term, and everybody else pretty much, uh, those who wanted an end to the Muslim Brotherhood rule, accusing them of hijacking the revolution and uh, breaking the promises according uh, which they were elected. Um, in, in, uh, on the 30th of June, they took the streets again, and the result was the army interfered and ousted President Morsi, and who is currently in jail. Uh, of course, that opened another chapter. Now the military, instead of uh, giving the opportunity for the civil society or the political parties to uh, have their candidate to uh, have another election... Uh, the defense minister back then, Abdel Fattah al-Sisi, decided to run himself uh, for the election. He was elected uh, the president in 2014. So as we see Egypt head towards another uh, election, things are really different from how it started. And the hope is 
I don't know if we can still use this word anymore. And I think it's difficult, Nasser, to summarize seven years in uh, in a few minutes. But I sh- I share the frustration of the majority of my Egyptian friends of course, because yeah. the level of hope was really high. Very high um, among. If you, do you remember, Nasser? We said, well, in in, in Tahrir Square became the capital of our hearts and minds. Two and, or three million people. Inspiration. Yeah, yeah. And that level of hope seems to have disappeared. Well, uh, uh, Egypt heading towards another election now. Yeah, yeah. Well, alleged election. Alleged. You know, the the um, uh, as with other elections in these um, in in some of these areas controlled by these um, dictators, mm. you know, ninety nine point six percent voted for them, and mm. you know they found Ahmed and he's been reeducated. So next year they expect a hundred percent. Yeah. The um, as pan Arabists as we both are, Yusuf, you know, the hope we had was in that this would be a transformative mo- moment for the rest of the Arab world. Mm. And there's one good thing that the United States gave us, one good thing, um, in that they fought for their independence from from the British Empire. Post their their civil war and the hundreds of thousands of people that died to end slavery and uh, unite the Union is the concept of a meritocracy. Mm. You know, what we have is, you know, uh, in the Arab world between monarchies, absolute monarchies, you know, mm. and kleptocracies and, and um, dictators, theocracies and dictatorships. Mm. The concept of meritocracy, where one is um, rewarded, regardless of sex, age, religion, um, uh, status, based on the output and the merit of their work, on their competence. Mm. Um, this is the ultimate evolution of, of a society, perhaps. Mm. Um, that we thought that perhaps we were hoped. I mean, I, I was very inspired during, um, I can't believe it was seven years ago, but that this was going to be the, the you know, the real start of democracy, not not Madeleine Albright's birth pang in Iraq, but this was going to be the start. Especially, I totally agree with you, especially that the, the spearheads of the, uh, of the revolution, the majority of them, are uh, currently in prisons. In prisons, yeah. And, uh, and Mubarak's back out. And now people are saying, well, the good old days are of, back. Of, of, of Mubarak. We don't want to be very harsh on everything. No. So we'll go back to the Egyptian uh, revolution or or uh, what remained of the slogans uh, raised in Tahrir, Aish, Hurriya, Adala, Ijtima'iya, Bread, Freedom and Social Justice. Uh, with this, we've come to the end of uh, this episode. Um, and uh, we're looking forward to uh, meeting you again uh, next Saturday with more news and views from Palestine. Thank you, Nasser. Thanks, Yusuf. And we will be the three of us hopefully next week. Until then, have a great time and salam.